0: Well, good morning again. I, I want to start with a question. I like doing that sometimes. When, uh, when you're not around, what do people say about you? What do people who, uh, who are asked, can you describe this person to me? What do they say about you? Just think about that for a minute. What, what would they say about you? And I, I had a little bit of an insight to this through my my one of my daughters actually Liberty she gave me permission so I'll say who which one it was. Uh, we were at this park and this uh, we were pushing our uh, Latheon the little baby swing, and uh, Liberty was in one of the big girl swings swinging with this little boy, and they started talking and sharing about life, their names, what grade and everything that they were in, and the things that they liked, and then they were started talking about siblings and cousins and everything and. The boy said how his mother's name is actually Alethea, close to Alethea. Uh, and then Liberty said, well, my mom's name is Mama, and my dad's name is Papa. And so just a little insight, that's, that's when Liberty's asked, who's your father? It's Papa. That's just a little bit. But when, when other people ask about us, or other people that don't really know us, what would they say about us? And usually if it's someone who's really close to you, they would have a lot more insight into who you are. And they would have a lot more insight into saying what it is. And so it makes a big difference whether they really know you or maybe they've just met you once or twice. Now when I say Jesus, who is Jesus? Then, then what would come to mind for you? Now, now this would make a big difference whether you're just learning about him or whether you really know him. So who do you say Jesus is? And you can just think on that. Who do you say Jesus is? There you go. But keep thinking about that. And now uh, our main passage today is uh, Mark 8, 27 to 9, 1. The, uh, the chapter divisions in the Bible uh, are something that sometimes doesn't quite line up. And this is one instance where the, this section actually Chips into the next passage. But I'll be reading out of the NIV 2011. uh, Starting in Mark 8, 27 to 30. So I'd love for you to, if you have a hard copy Bible. Or an iBible to open it up and track along with me as we go through. Or as always, it'll be on the screen behind me. And it says in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them. Who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And he's talking to his disciples here, his closest disciples. Peter answered, You're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Isn't that a bit of a weird thing? Peter declares, You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the hope of the world. And Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody about it. Keep that, keep that to yourself. Keep that on the down low, as the kids these days would say. So there's a few things I want to highlight out of this as we go along here. And the first is that in verse 27, it says that Jesus taught on the way. Jesus, Jesus uh, sometimes would take his disciples and, and sit somewhere for a little bit of time and teach them. But in this instance... He's so busy traveling from place to place that he's teaching them on the way. He doesn't just use uh, the, the travel time to be quiet time. He uses it to actually use it to teach them. And so on the way, he's calling people to follow him and to disciple him. And he's learning and teaching these people along the way what it means to follow him. And then Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? This is such an important question. And so again, I'll ask it to you. Who do you say Jesus is? And keep keep that in mind. Who do you say Jesus is? And because this is the center of understanding of what it means to follow after Jesus. Who Jesus is to you changes everything. It changes how you think, how you act, how you pray, how you live your life. So who do you say Jesus is? In verse 28, when he's, when he's talking about who do these people, who do the crowds, who do the people out there, the public people say that I am. They recognize something about Jesus. And they don't give all of the answers, but they give some of the major answers. They, they can recognize, these crowds can, answer, or can recognize that this is a person of power. This is a person who can do amazing things. Now, I want just a little bit of insight. All of the people that, that these people are saying Jesus is, are people that have already died at this point. So they they believe Jesus is someone who's come back from the dead doing these amazing things. So one of the most amazing prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah. Elijah was an amazing prophet who did so many miracles. He preached some amazing hard messages. And then they say one of the prophets. So the, the Old Testament was full of many prophets who rose up. So again, it could be any number of them. Or they're saying John the Baptist who is already dead at this point. So they're thinking, well, it could be whatever, whoever Jesus is, he's an amazing prophet. And they're actually, they don't include it in this list because Jesus would have already been aware of this. But there are some people who think that Jesus uh, is an agent of the devil. They think that he's actually working under the power of Satan, that that's how he casts out demons. That's how he does some of these miracles, that he's working for the bad guy. But then Jesus turns to them and says, what about you guys? What about you guys that have followed me around, that know me the best out of anyone else? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, as the leader of the crowd, pipes up and he gives this answer. He says, you're the Messiah. Now, you would think that now that they would, they've followed Jesus around, that this is the answer he's looking for. This would be the light bulb moment that now he can celebrate and victory and, and go, okay, now go tell the whole world. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus actually says, be quiet, keep that to yourself. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit more of why. But I think one of the reasons is because Peter didn't quite get what it actually meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. He didn't quite get what it meant and we'll see that as we go along here. But Jesus, uh, Jesus as he was walking around, he saw them do, or he uh, had the disciples witness him do some amazing things. They watched how he prayed. They watched how he lived his life, how he healed, how he loved, how he judged people, how he preached, how he often confused crowds, and even how he rebuked people. But he says, those who know me best, who do you say I am? And they understand at least this. They believe he's the Messiah. But then in Mark eight thirty-one to 33, it goes on after this proclamation that, that Peter has this amazing thing and Jesus told them to be quiet. He goes on, it goes on to say, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is a a title of the Messiah from the Old Testament. uh, It's essentially saying the same thing. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And just to make it clear that he wasn't talking in riddles or in parables, it says in 32, he spoke plainly about this. He spoken in a way that they, they would have understood. And, Je- and Peter took him aside, that's Jesus, and they began to rebuke him. Now, rebuke isn't a word that we, that we use a lot, but it kind of means chastise, or it means correct. And it means to, to put them back on the right path. But then it says in 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And this is, I I said this in a few weeks ago, but this is one of the harshest rebukes in the entire Bible. And if if you're someone who wants to follow after God, this is not something that you want somebody else saying about you. He says, get behind me, Satan. Have you ever had someone get really mad at you and say that to you? You know, you're having an argument with your spouse or something, and they're, they're getting really heated, and then they say, Get behind me, Satan! That's, that's not something Carson's ever said to me, thankfully. Grace, mercy, but that's not something that's used in everyday speech, right? That's kind of going a little bit far, but Jesus obviously has a real point here. Jesus doesn't do it just for, just for getting the attention. But he says, You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You do not have God's concerns. You don't have the mind of God. You have the mind of human beings, only human concerns. So just let's think about this for a second. So Jesus asks them, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And And then Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. And then he goes on to teach them a little bit more of what it actually means to be the Messiah. And he says, the Messiah, me as the son of man, the Messiah, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by these three ruling classes, by the elders, by the, uh, by the religious leaders. Let me get the exact right time. The three ruling types in Israel, the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. So these would have been the three top people in Israel, the three top groups. So he says, I'm going to be rejected by all the top people in Israel. Now, we're not Old Testament uh, Jewish people. So we don't quite understand the yearning and the pain and the hope that they had for the coming Messiah. For thousands of years, they had been promised that there would be this Messiah that would come, that would save them. And after the the minor prophets uh, finished the Old Testament uh, section, there was no more writings about, uh, there was no more uh, inspired scriptures that were written, it was the waiting period for this Messiah to come. And so they waited, the Roman government came in and they prayed for God to come and rescue them. And so this Messiah that was to come was supposed to be the one who was going to save them from the evil Romans, the one that was going to restore justice to Israel, that was going to cleanse the temple, that was going to bring peace on earth, They're waiting for this Messiah. And then Jesus says, you're right, I'm the Messiah. But just so you know what's going to happen, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by all the top people in Israel. And then I'm going to be killed. And so you can understand, I know we like to pick on the disciples or the people in the Bible that make mistakes because we have different perspective. But just imagine, this person who is supposed to bring hope and peace and joy and prosperity and healing back to Israel, he says, no, no, that's not quite what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer and die. That doesn't make any sense. So Peter, of course, it makes sense that Peter's like, no, 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 that can't work. That, those two don't add up. So he, he tries to take Jesus aside and say, no, no, that can't happen. The Messiah is supposed to win the victory, so you can't lose. But the Bible says something interesting. It says that, that Jesus looks at Peter And then he turns his back on him and looks at the other disciples. And the the reason that he does this is because he wants to see what they're thinking. Is Peter alone in this, or are they with him? And he realizes they actually are thinking the same thing Peter's thinking. So then he very clearly rebukes Peter in front of the rest of them so they can all hear and they can all be corrected too. He says, You're not thinking the way you need to be thinking. And he's actually being a mouthpiece of the enemy. The enemy tried to, when, when he first, uh, when he first uh, was encountering Jesus, and he was trying to tempt him. He said, I'll give you the whole world. You just have to bow down and worship me. It was the easier path. Jesus knew that he would have a hard path to follow. He knew that the end would be the cross. And the enemy tempted him with an easier path. And the same way, Peter was trying to tempt him with an easier path. So he wasn't thinking the way that God wanted him to think. He was actually thinking the way that the enemy wanted him to think. And this shows us that wrong thinking actually leads, leads to wrong living. If we think just about humanity and just about our human needs and just about our human desires, we won't be thinking about God. And so Jesus talking about this path that he has to take of suffering and walking towards what is called the passion of Christ, the death of Christ. All that Peter can think about is human concerns and go, suffering does not equal victory. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But merely human concerns, the more time we spend with God, he actually transforms our hearts and transforms our minds to think more and more like him. So Jesus, after correcting Peter's wrong thinking and wrong words, he goes on to explain even more what being a follower of Jesus actually means. These people had followed him for almost three years now. They didn't quite get it. So he goes on and explains it more clearly. So in Mark 8:34 to 9, 1, it says this. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. So this this crowd had been around him, but they had given him some privacy with his closest followers. He calls the large crowd to him, and he says to all of them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And then he said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. A disciple is a a word that we throw around a lot, but I like to define terms to make it simple. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. It's somebody who wants to learn what it is to follow after Jesus, to become more like him, to live their lives and surrender to him. In the Old Testament, the disciples were a common thing. They would pick a rabbi, and they would follow after that rabbi and learn to be as much like them as they could. And so it's learning to be like Jesus. And the word uh, Christian that we actually use often interchangeably with disciple was actually kind of a slur. It actually was making fun of people who wanted to be like Jesus, like the Christ. So they called them little Christs, which is, comes out as the word Christian. So to say we're Christians is we're little Jesuses. That's what it means. And so we have to actually follow after Jesus like these little Christs. And so Jesus gives very clearly requirements to be a disciple here. He gives three of them. And the first is to die to self. self Self-denial. And so it says, it's to deny yourself. It's saying, not my will be done, but your will be done. And it's not about, uh, some, some movements have made this about Okay, everything that you enjoy, throw that out of your life and only do things that make you miserable. That's, that's essentially, that's uh, what some people have, have thought that it means to deny yourself. This asceticism, this, this life removed from enjoyments. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Nor is it just self-discipline. Nor is it just having absolute control over everything in your life. That's a part of it, but it's not everything. So in other words, self-discipline, Uh, denial or dying to yourself is not denial of something to yourself. It's actually denial of the self itself. How's that for plain English this morning? So yourself is who you are. And so denial of yourself is saying, what I want isn't the most important thing. If we say we want to follow after Jesus, we want to love Jesus, it's saying that what Jesus wants is more important than what I want. What Jesus asks is more important than what I would ask of him. What others need is more important than what I need. And it's this intentional denial of putting ourselves first. And now this is the exact opposite of what our whole world and modern psychology and modern thinking is against. This is the exact opposite because the exact opposite uh, or the what the primary way the world would say is affirm yourself, think positively. You are good. You are great. You're good enough. You are amazing, and you deserve the best. All modern advertising goes like this: Your life sucks, or it's not quite good enough. But it'll be better if you treat yourself to this new car, this new lotion this new iPad, this new whatever. Your life will be better. You deserve better. And so what if somebody does something against us, our instant thought is, that's against my rights. That's against, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to do something against this. This isn't right. I'm going to stand up for myself and I'm going to do this. But what Jesus calls us to is to intentionally set those things aside. Instead of going, I deserve better, It's saying, I want the better for other people. I want what Jesus wants. And I know this is something that seems almost contradictory, but this is actually Jesus' example for us. This is what Jesus did. In Philippians 2, 5 to 8, it says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, Something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so, in other words, Jesus was in heaven with all that he could ever want, all that he could ever need, with all the pleasures that are possible. And he says, I'm choosing to give that up, to deny those things for myself, to come to earth, to be a servant of people that I created. And he humbled himself, it says, to the point even of death on a cross, knowing that it wouldn't just be a temporary thing of just not getting everything that he wants or deserves, because he does deserve everything. He deserves righteousness. Instead, he chose to live a life of a plain human being, And then to die the horrible death that we all actually deserved. When he didn't deserve it. Jesus chose to set aside his rights, his privileges, his wants, his desires for us. That's what self-denial is. That's the greatest example of it. And so self-denial for us, it means knowing Jesus and seeing him. And having him as our greatest desire. And the first step to self-denial is to die. Uh, the great theologian and thinker and pastor and writer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, said this, the cross is not the horrible end of a pious, happy life, but it stands rather at the beginning of community with Jesus Christ. So we can think about Jesus' death on the cross as this horrible tragedy, as this awful thing, and it is awful, and it was a tragedy, and it is a sad thing. But it's the beginning of community and relationship with Jesus. And so when Jesus asks us to die to self, it's actually the beginning of a new life with him. And so self-denial takes many forms, and it would be, take too long for me to even go through absolutely everyone that it could look like. But some of the things that the disciples went through, they left their jobs and their families, for the proud, it could mean re- renouncing the desire for status and honor and privileges. For the greedy, it might mean giving up your appetite for more and for better. And for the complacent, it might mean giving up your comfort. For the faint hearted, it might mean giving up your security. For the angry, it might mean giving up your desire for revenge. So the question is for you, what do you need to give up for Jesus? What do you need to deny for yourself, for Jesus? Think on that as we keep going here. The second that Jesus gives is to take up your cross. Now the cross is an instrument of torture and death. And the cross is actually the central cross. It's a center of discipleship. And it's at the very heart of the gospel. It's a symbol of death and torture. And crucifixion itself was a cruel, disgusting penalty and was the worst of all tortures. The Roman people would do it to put down uh, rebellions, that they would crucify people as a public sign that these people are the lowest of lows and this is what happens to people that go against us. It wasn't, it wasn't something that they would ever do for, for Roman citizens, it's something that they would only do for people that were against them. And so. He's saying that picking up your cross is a cost of being a follower of Jesus. So confession that Jesus is Christ is not enough. Mere confession, it says, you have to actually have a willingness to die for your faith. It's setting aside your life and saying, I'm willing to die for Jesus. And uh, often in our terms, we think, well, this is my, we say things like, well, this is my cross to bear. Maybe I have, I have an illness, maybe I have a sickness, something like this. That's my cross to bear. Or I have a family member that, that, uh, that doesn't follow after Jesus. Well, maybe that's my cross to bear. Maybe I have a, an ailment, a sickness, whatever. That's what we use, but that's actually not what Jesus is talking about. It's not a burden given, given by God. It's not an illness, relationship problems, or catastrophe. The cross that he's talking about is human oppression. It's oppression and attack of other people who are against Jesus, who want to silence and kill and condemn other people who follow after Jesus. So it's done by those who oppose the faith and the witness of Christians. And this is what's happening in Nigeria right now. In the hundreds of Christians that have been massacred just because they say, I follow Jesus. So then by... People in Nigeria, by faithful Christians in Nigeria, still choosing to declare publicly, I'm a Christian, by getting together and worshiping on a Sunday, knowing that they might be killed for that, that's picking up their cross and saying, it's worth it for me to follow after Jesus. And there's this, uh, this woman that Kirsten really likes listening to on podcast named Jill Briscoe, and she talks about, uh, I don't even remember which country it was, it was an Eastern European country, but uh, it was under communist re- regime and what they would do is uh, almost every Sunday they would, uh, they would go into the churches and they would arrest everyone that was there gathered to worship and then they would put them in prison because it was illegal to have faith in Jesus at this point. So they would put everyone in prison and then uh, it would be too many people so they'd let them out in a few days or maybe they'd keep some of them a couple weeks and then it just kept being the cycle over and over and over again. So they would come to church knowing the most likely thing that would happen was they would get arrested. And uh, there was this one man that was away visiting his family, and he came back later that Sunday and r- realized that everyone had uh, been put in prison. And so he goes and knocks on the gates of the prison, and he says, let me in, let me in. I want to suffer for my faith in Jesus. I want to go to prison for Jesus. Let me in. And eventually the guards gave up arresting people because they started coming to faith in Jesus and the government recognized this isn't working. This isn't having the effect that we want. It actually was creating more and more people who wanted to follow after Jesus. Now that's picking up your cross and following after Jesus. It's not, only, it's not, only, it's not what our natural thing would be, which would be to shy away from suffering, but it's actually running towards suffering for Jesus's glory. Not asking for it, not necessarily seeking for it, unless you're like that one guy that says, I too want to suffer for my faith. But it's picking up our cross and being willing to die for Jesus. And then the third call that Jesus has is to follow Jesus. Now that should be clear. When Jesus first called his disciples, his first call was follow me. But now he actually reverses it. But he says following after him, has to be obedience to him as the primary purpose of your life. Following Jesus isn't something you can just tack on and say, well, I'll do all this other stuff and then I'll get religion just to make sure that I get into to heaven. I'll just tack it on, almost like an insurance policy. It's just like the, the uh, uh, extended benefits or whatever that you could tack on. Being a disciple means that you have to just do more than get Jesus' title right. Right? It means that you have to actually follow after him. It means that you actually have to follow after him in all things. So it starts with following him, and then our obedience grows as we follow after him. So Jesus calls people come after me, be willing to die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow after me wherever I go. So eventually, we have to be willing. That if we're asked tomorrow, are you a Christian, by someone who's holding a gun to our head, that the choice for us would be that we would rather die than give up Jesus. That we would rather die than to, than to say that Jesus isn't right. Now, the cross and suffering itself is a stumbling block. This goes against all of our conventional wisdom. It goes against everything that we would think and even the, the statements that Jesus make are paradoxes. He says whoever wants to save their life will lose it. So if you want to save your life you'll lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. If you want to lo- save your life you're going to lose it. If you if you give up your life you're going to save it. Now Jesus is tapping into a basic human need and idea here that we want to preserve our lives. We want to keep living. And there are times when there's psychological trauma, when there's hardships, when there's emotional problems, when maybe that, the, the pain in our life gets more than we can bear and that we think that, that death would be easier. And I'm not talking about that. That's, that's a sad and hard and horrible thing. But for the most part, we want to live. But we, we recognize that though we want to save our life, if we actually follow after Jesus, there's a better life to come. And so saving our temporary life on Earth, buying us a few more lives or a few more years on Earth, we might be giving up an eternal life in heaven. And so what Jesus calls us to is to actually live life and live life to the full. And that means to be willing to die each day, to live each day like it might be your last, and to use it for him. And so he gives us the way to true life. So what is it, he says, he has these two great questions. He says, what good would it be to gain everything in the world, everything you could dream of, you have the biggest house, you have all of the money, you have all the cars, you have all the health. What's, what is the benefit of gaining all of that, but then you lose out on eternity? What is the good of that? And then he says, what is the cost of your soul? What would be the point of giving up your soul for this? So instead, what Jesus says is, we should never be ashamed to be a Christian. Because he gives us this, this, this great warning that there's no point in exchanging comfort on earth for an eternity in heaven. But this self-giving love, this is hard. I'm not belittling this. Giving of yourself, this self-denial, this sacrificial love, it's extremely hard. And it goes against what the world would say, where I want to do the best that I can for me, regardless of the cost to other people. That's the, the usual of the world. We want the greatest benefit for the least cost. That's what we want. But what Jesus has is give me everything and you'll get even more. And so he's not asking, uh, he's not asking for a little bit and then I'll give you a little bit more. He's saying give me everything you have and then I'll give you everything I have. He says be willing to give up absolutely everything. But we face the temptation of the world to instead of follow after this high and hard calling that Jesus has to be willing to suffer and die, to pick up your cross and follow after me, we try to find this easier, safer, more comfortable version of Christianity. Often when uh, there's been discussion uh, in the church about what is the, the least amount of requirements to be a Christian? What, what is the point at which people are, are safe when they're saved? Is it just that they need to uh there was there was a discussion between do they just need to say jesus is lord or do they actually have to live like jesus is lord and i have my own opinion about these things but these both have the wrong question they're trying to look for where's the the minimum requirements and jesus actually never talks about minimum requirements he never talks about two types of disciples do you want to be a mediocre disciple or do you want to be a good disciple he never talks about this he says follow after me and if we're looking at where the bare minimum line is and just trying to say well i just want to do just enough just to get into heaven then we're actually looking the wrong way we're looking away from jesus so we need to look towards jesus and say whatever it costs whatever it takes i want to follow after you but instead we usually ask what can i get out of this What's the little that I can put in to get the most out? And I'm not standing up here being perfect at this. This is something that I'm sure every single person here struggles with every single day. It's so hard sometimes to do this. To think, well, I need to, I need to, to give up my life when, when we constantly are trying to figure out well, what how much is too much? Or what should I give? Or how much should, amount of money should I give? Or how much of my time should I give? And the answer should be all. Everything is God's. And so at any moment we should have open hands and say to God, Use me. But too often we stick to our own comfort zones. So instead, let's spur each other on to live radically loving lives, or we're willing to do anything for the good of others. So Jesus lays clearly out the requirements to be his followers. We need to die to self, take up a cross, and follow after him. And it's not easy, but Jesus never promises an easy life. He doesn't promise success, wealth, health, or happiness. He has many promises, but they don't include temporary pleasure. If temporary pleasure is all you want, then don't look to Jesus, because you can get that anywhere else. The enemy's happy to keep people satiated, just going after temporary pleasure. And if that's what you want, following after Jesus, isn't it? Because he calls to a hard and painful life at times. That's what relationship with Jesus means, but it means that you'll never be alone. So who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Is Jesus this God-man, someone you're willing to follow, even with the costs of discipleship? Are you actually following him or is his calling too hard? Are you looking for an easier version of Christianity? And Jesus often gives practical wisdom and he gives this example of the cost of discipleship in Luke. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. So if we say, well, I want to follow after Jesus, but I don't, I don't want it to cost me too much. Well, then Jesus is warning, well, you're going to get ridiculed along the way because you're going to give up. But in the, So in the last two verses of this passage, Jesus gives a warning and then he gives a promise. The first is anyone who's ashamed of Jesus, he'll be ashamed of them. So if we say, well, I don't don't want to follow after Jesus, or we deny Jesus when it gets too hard, then he says, if you don't stand with me, then I'm not going to stand with you. So being a good person is not just enough. Knowing the right answers to who Jesus is isn't enough. It takes your whole life given to him in service to him and to others. And now I started by asking, what will people say about you? How would they describe you? So if you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, those who aren't that familiar with you, maybe those casual acquaintance, maybe the people you just run into the grocery store, would they be able to look at you, and if being a Christian was illegal, would they be able to convict you and send you to jail for being a Christian? Would they be able to look at you and say, they're different, there's something about them that I don't quite know, but there's something about them. Would they be able to follow you around and your life looks different from the person who doesn't go to church? Would they actually be able to look at you and say there is a person like Jesus and maybe they hate you for that or maybe they love you for it but would they be able to convict you of that? Or look at this from another angle. Who would Jesus say that you are? He warns that those who are ashamed of him he'll be ashamed of him or that he'll be ashamed of So does Jesus speak well of you and your love for him and others or not so much? Is your obedience to him only deep enough that you merely know about him without actually following him? Now I said there's a warning and a promise and the promise is this, that he will give you the power that he needs, that you need. He says they will see that the kingdom has come, the kingdom of God has come with power. The kingdom of God has come with power. So Jesus isn't saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do this alone. He says, yes, come and follow after me, but I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to be the one pulling you along. I'm going to be the one that's helping you. If you follow after Jesus, you'll never be alone. You'll never have to do this alone. You'll never have to do it on your own strength. Jesus is asking all of us to do something that's beyond our power. I can't do this. You can't do this alone. This self-denial that goes against everything that's in our sinful hearts. This picking up our cross and walking towards your death, that's not something that I'm strong enough to do. It's not something you're strong enough to do alone. Following after Jesus, that's totally against what the world would want you to do. So these things can only be done if we surrender to God and say, not my will be done, your will be done. And then he will carry you to do these things. He'll give you the power that you need And so you're not strong enough, but day by day, he'll give you the ability and the power and the love that you need to care for other people. He'll give you deeper love through prayer, through worship, through reading the Bible and acts of service to others that you'll feel and you'll know Jesus better as you follow after him deeper. No matter how much love you feel for him now, there's more that you can feel for him. If you surrender more to him, no matter how much love you give away, He'll give you more and more love to give. He'll give you more to give away. It isn't complex. It's simple. Love Jesus enough to say, not my will be done, your will be done every single day. So who is Jesus to you this morning? Maybe you've been a Christian your whole life, or as long as you can remember, and you're living in perfect obedience to him. That's amazing. Maybe, maybe you're someone who has confessed Jesus, but you recognize your life doesn't look like it should. Well, then ask him to help you follow after him. Maybe you've done something, said something that you regret. Well, Jesus is ready to forgive you. Or maybe you don't know who Jesus is yet. Maybe you just want to follow after him. If you pray to him, he will answer you, and he'll show you. He'll reveal himself to you. And so I have three practical ways for us to uh, respond to this this morning. And then I want us to uh, respond in worship as well and in prayer. Our altars on the sides here are always open. And if, uh, if you want to spend some time with Jesus alone, then uh, you can stay in your pew or you can come to these altars. If you want me to come and pray with you, I'll, I'll be at the front here and I'd love to pray for you. But here's the three practical ways as the, the worship team comes forward. The first is to read. Read James 1. And ask God to speak to you through it. James 1 is all about practical faith and following after Jesus. So read it. And if you get through James 1, read the rest of the book of James. It's great. And the second is to pray. Pray and ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. And then the next is to join. To sign up for Alpha. Alpha is a great opportunity to just learn more about who Jesus is. So let me pray as the worship team begins leading us in worship this morning. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love for us, for your grace and your mercy. And Jesus, the call that you have on us to die to ourselves, to pick up our crosses and to follow after you is so hard, but you give us the strength to do it. When we surrender to you and say, I'm not strong enough to do this, would you please give me your strength? Then you are faithful and you will give us that strength and that power, Lord. Lord, you have a whole world out there that needs to hear about the truth of you. And they won't if we're just sitting on our hands, just waiting for you to come back and getting to heaven. Lord, it's not just about us getting our ticket into heaven. It's about living our lives to the full in self-sacrificial love. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would be committed to you, committed to spending every day saying, not my will be done, your will be done, Jesus. That we would be people who don't just know the right answers about who you are. But we would be the people who actually know who you are. And I pray for those here this morning that maybe haven't yet put their full hope and trust and faith in you, Jesus. That you would be drawing them closer to you. And that they would take a step forward in faith to say, I want to follow Jesus. That I don't know what that looks like. I don't have all the answers, but I want to follow after Jesus. So Lord, have our hearts this morning. We surrender to them to you and say, we love you, Jesus. And we love other people enough to tell them about you. Now, as we worship and respond to what you are doing, may this song and the words of this song seek to our hearts, Lord. May this be our prayer to you. Amen.